Welcome back to Mince Levin's From the Edge. I am Jeremy Glazer, the co-chair of the Mince Levin Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. Mince Levin is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at minceedge.com. Well, I am really pleased to have John Creelman with us today. John was raised and educated in Orange County and started his career in financial management with large tech companies like Western Digital. Since 1995, about the time we met John, John has been part of the tech scene here as a serial CFO and COO. Notable stops along the way were Copper Mountain Networks, ID Analytics, and RT Oncology. John has done multiple initial public offerings and raised hundreds of millions of dollars in private venture capital and debt. And he's been the sitting CFO for eight venture or private equity backed companies. So on today's podcast, John's going to discuss with us a bit of his journey as a veteran CFO and his experiences funding numerous successful companies in both the private and public markets and share some lessons learned along the way. John's also going to discuss the balance between good financial management in building and growing technology companies against the pace and urgency required to be successful in that same environment. Well, welcome, John, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So maybe share with us, what was your first experience, John, as a financial executive? Sure. I've been very fortunate in my career, and I actually was a financial executive um, from the very beginning of my career. I ended up working for Western Digital while I was in business school, and I landed a, an internship that turned into a full-time job there. And because of the skill set that I had and some of the requirements and the gaps they had, I actually ran the financial planning and analysis, a good portion of that. I ran the model for the corporation, and I actually wasn't even an employee. So it was a very unique opportunity, and I was fortunate to be exposed at the highest level of the corporation um, from the get-go. So I was an executive before I got my MBA. How's that? So for some of our listeners who may not know what Western Digital is, what was the business? How did they grow? Are they still in existence? Yeah, good good question or some framing there. And it's actually, there's an interesting story there because Western Digital today is one of the few freely traded public, you know, independent, freely standing um, storage companies, data storage, disk drive companies. They make storage of all types and flavors. Um, and when I went into Western Digital, they were actually on the tail end of a, a a 20-year chapter where they'd actually been a semiconductor and peripheral company. And they were faced with what was going to be a very dramatic um, change in their product lineup and revenue stream, violent change. And so I went through that trip product transition where $600 million of their revenue was going to go away, out of a billion dollars was going to go away, and essentially have to be replaced by being a pure play storage company where the electronics for the disk drive where they had provided were going to be integrated. So everyone today knows drives are integrated. That was not the case. So it went through that transition. And um, the company was highly leveraged, very low margin business, uh, tough, tough manufacturing environment. So a great environment to learn, but a very difficult transition for the company. And it's public knowledge they nearly went, you know, they nearly went BK in the process. So you started out with your first job as an intern, and that rolled into a full-time job. So that was the beginning of your sort of stepping towards becoming a CFO of technology companies. 
What was the process? What were the steps along the way to becoming a CFO of all of these fabulous, you know, both public and private companies? Um, well, you know, I guess my path in some respects to being a CFO was a little bit atypical in that I did not come out of public accounting. And so that's obviously a track where, you know, people get the, the, the grounding and the fundamentals in, um, you know, accounting and technical accounting and so on and so forth. My path at Western Digital, because I was immersed in sort of this firefight where we literally took the company apart and rebuilt it. We went from four strategic business units to one. We laid off thousands of people. I shut factories in Cork, Ireland and, and in Puerto Rico, board, board manufacturing factories. And we moved into the dry business in Singapore. So I got operational finance, hands-on operational, um, corporate finance. I ran the model for the company. We had rounds of layoffs. People, you know, I would get promoted. Here you're getting promoted because we fired five people. So I took on more and more. And so I really learned, um, you know, I got a, a tremendous breadth of operating experience. And in that five years at Western Digital, I'd say I literally got 10, 10, or, 10 or 12 years of experience. And then I did, I, I left Western Digital to go to another data storage company that was private, about $100 million a year revenue run rate. Um, the opportunity to go work for a CFO in a smaller environment as a number two person and do an IPO and ultimately did that. So that, that really rounded me in, in, in terms of you know, the, the public markets and capital markets. But again, I'd had such a breadth of, of experience, um, including hardcore controllership and operating roles at WD, that that really set me into my first CFO role in 1995 here in San Diego. So kind of a very a very traditional path in a lot of ways. You were working at a much larger company, you were involved in the finance at different levels, and then you kind of moved to a private company as number two, and then obviously ultimately I, I assume became number one as we know. Um, so that first move, did you raise venture capital for that company, or was there a different company where you were involved in your first venture capital raise? Actually, the, the my first CFO job, ironically, I went in and they were literally in 1995, it was a software company here in the San Diego area, and they were actually um, wrapping up. They had essentially agreed on a term sheet and I went in and essentially did completed the financing and all the documentation and all of that and worked through that process. So I got an immediate immersion, very good experience. I got an immediate sort of baptism in that. Um, now the terms and the conditions, and actually there, it had been done in con connection with a recap. So a couple investors stayed in, one new investor came in and so forth. So um, from the get-go, I was exposed to the VC equity fundraising process, and term sheets, the, the attendant documents and all of that. So great experience. So you've raised a lot of venture capital for a lot of companies. You must have some really interesting stories, things that you know went really well, things that maybe went a little haywire. Any stories that you might have to share? Well, I think, ironically, that, that first company that I worked for, it was kind of an interesting story because there was a new investor who led the recap of the company and led the round, um, and I you know, walked in and assumed, you know, kind of finishing this documentation. And that investor was, frankly, a pretty contentious sort of a style. And, um, you know, this person ultimately um, 
challenge, not, not only challenge the board in a collegial fashion, but actually down the road when the company didn't perform, actually out of the chute, when the company didn't perform and hit the original projections that someone else had done, the CEO, a guy I knew, guy who was a finance person by training, um, this investor sort of started really making, essentially doing very destructive things, threatening to sue the company, threatening to sue the board. So it was, uh, it was a horror story, but an incredible learning experience all at the same time. And within six months, the CEO, the, the one person I knew in the deal who brought me into the deal, within six months, the CEO is out the door. And essentially, I'm running the company and they bring in a board member to sort of be the CEO two days a week. And I'm essentially running the company as CFO and COO. And I'm nine months into it. And oh, by the way, we're going to run out of money. And to raise money, we're going to do another recap. And we're going to, you know, and, and go and go and do some bridge debt, uh, ultimately recap the company and find a new investor. So that's a tough first exposure to venture capital. Yeah. And, you know, they've not, they've not, not all my experiences have been that way. Most, most of my experiences and subsequent to that, I've been fortunate in that I've worked with what I consider to be top tier, you know, blue chip VCs. Um, most of the companies historically that I've, I've, I've worked, worked for have been, you know, Series B, Series C. So there are already a couple of VCs around the table. And again, um, you know, reputable folks, very balanced, know how to navigate, um, work with founders, work with, you know, all kinds of transition, as well as, of course, the underlying business and the markets and the products. So um, generally, you know, I sort of, I sort of got the, uh, I sort of got the tough the tough part out of the way in the beginning. What, what advice, John, do you have for our listeners out there who are looking to raise venture capital? You've raised venture capital for so many different companies in you know, different um, stages of venture capital. So if I'm a first-time entrepreneur, I'm going out to raise my first venture capital, what's your advice? Well, I think, you know, a couple of things, first of all. Um, you know, differentiation, understanding how you really differentiated and, and how you tell that story. And, you know, everyone is, you're selling something when you're fundraising. You are selling something and everybody's selling. So if you're a CFO, you better learn that it's not about the numbers and you're not just standing behind the CEO. You know, you have to be able to articulate the story. And and again, it's more than a story. And we'll get into you know some of the the substance of, of that, if you will. But understanding your value proposition, um, and and having that be real, and then in turn being able to convey that in a compelling way. You know, on one hand, there's more capital than ever. There's there's more money available than ever. But then on the other hand, the bar has gone up. You know, the seed is the new A round. So the so the level of scrutiny at even just a seed round can be, you know, in, incredible. And the number of times you'll have to pitch even for a seed round and the number of times you will more for as folks are fond of saying pivot and really refine not only the story, but the underlying value problem. What do you do? Do you change your pricing, your markets? And, you know, these successful companies don't start off with the right recipe. So understanding that and being able to convey that, I think, is is very important. You know, again, on one hand, there's more money than ever chasing deals, but the bar is generally higher and there's more deals. There's more innovation than ever. That's what makes America amazing. But, you know, there's also more deals competing. So I think that's that's the advice, if that makes sense. When you're going out to raise venture capital, to have a full-time CFO, to have, you know, fully built out five-year projections, 
as compared to other things? Is, is that really important? Is it only marginally important? What's your view on that? You know, it's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a really good question because um, for the last couple of years, I've actually been in a consulting mode. And so I'm consulting with companies that, um, you know, are happy to have me and, and what I bring to the party, but can't afford necessarily a full-time CFO or want that on a fractional basis. And not just day-to-day -day operations, but raising money, positioning, building the models, and so on and so forth. So the last couple of years, we've actually been working with relatively earlier stage companies where it's just not feasible. And so, no, that's not advisable. In fact, some investors will say, well, you know, okay, show me, you know, show me your management team and, and where are you spending your money? Because, you know, early on, every dollar is precious. And if you're spending, you know, 200K plus per year on a CFO, unless they're wearing three or four other hats, um, you know, I want to see you investing in, in, in product and technology and engineering. But, you know, so again, I think it's sort of very much stage dependent. And, and of course, you get into B and C round and, you know, these more traditional VCs, if you will, are looking for someone for a full-time CFO, someone who's been there, done that, someone who's going to be a good steward of the capital. And then, frankly, someone who's been through many different versions of the movie, as I like to say. Have you been through tough times? Have you had to lay people off, unfortunately? Have you been with a company that's ramped really hard? Have you been with a company that can't find the fast water and you have to morph a couple of times and, 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 and advise the management team and the board as well? through a, a variety of you know, scenarios and different outcomes. So in addition to raising money privately, you've also taken companies public, you've done a number of initial public offerings, and you've also sold some companies. So you've been involved in a lot of interesting exits. I'm sure there must be some very interesting stories either from the IPOs or from some M&A transactions you were involved with. Anything you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start with the M&A piece. Um, you know, ironically, I did my first M&A transaction on the uh, on the sell side while I was at Western Digital. As I alluded to, Western Digital, and again, this is all public knowledge, was going through a, a tremendous transition where they had all these peripherals, board level products. It used to be you open up a PC and there's a electronics card for your for your uh, your storage controller, and then there was one for your video imaging, your CGA, EGA, VGA card. And we also had a communications product line for LAN-WAN cards for early stage communications. And um, I basically worked with a couple of other operations and finance folks and essentially sold the, our comm business unit, our communications business unit. The company needed to raise cash and it was part of this transition, very, very tight um, you know, constraints because they were highly leveraged couldn't borrow anymore, very low margin, therefore low, low profitability and cash flow and had difficult servicing. So as part of that transition, I worked on that sale and that was a tremendous experience in, in selling the company with really two or three, doing every, every element and aspect of it, including you know, documenting you know, all the inventory and the warranty provisions and all the reserves to you know, the, 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 asset, the asset purchase, you know, the, uh, the documentation. I guess on the IPO side, my first IPO in 1994 for the storage company I mentioned um, after I'd left Western Digital was an amazing experience because, you know, I was really empowered. I got, you know, I, 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 I draft, I sat in all the drafting sessions and then, you know, so I had sort of full access and full, full participation in everything. And in fact, the CFO was relatively, you know, relatively lax and essentially, you know, 
handed me more and more. And then I worked with the analysts in building the models. And that was a tremendous experience in terms of understanding that, that process and the Chinese wall, um, which at that time wasn't as, as solid as it is today, but that Chinese wall between the bankers and the analysts and working with the analysts to help them, you know, giving them the shape of the company's projections, but obviously they go off and independently develop those models and then release those after the quiet period, after the IPO. Um, did an IPO in 1999 with Copper Mountain Networks, and you know that was a bit like being a, a gladiator in Roman times. The the the, the just a, a frenzied pace. The roadshow. Um, I, I remember the, during the big dot com boom for our listeners. Yeah, we were a networking communications company. We had real revenue. We had we had real revenue. We manufactured products and stuff. People bought tangible you know systems from us, and we had a tremendous revenue ramp. We had inventory and receivables and metrics to report around and all that. But um, you know, I remember the roadshow in New York. The demand for all of these deals was ridiculous. And for people who understand the process, um, by the time we ended, I think, you know, uh, uh, last week, uh, Dropbox went public. And in the Wall Street Journal, they said that they were oversubscribed. Wow, big deal. We were 20x oversubscribed of, of what we were selling. And But in New York, the roadshow, they split the team. The CEO and CFO would normally go meeting to meeting to meeting. And then you'd have a luncheon and a meeting to meeting to meeting. Well, we split the team. So the CEO went and did accounts by himself all morning. Then I did accounts by myself with institutional investors. An hour, boom, boom, boom. And then the luncheon in New York was at the Plaza Hotel, and you're in the biggest banquet room. And then they open the doors in the back because it extends and opens up into the next two banquet rooms. And as far as the eye can see, there are tables full of, of prospective investors. So. Um, you know, pretty, uh, pretty uh, awe-inspiring um, and, you know, uh, a pretty humbling experience. So I think that and then I guess one other one other kind of in reflecting, reflecting on it, the day that we actually went, went effective, the day that we went effective, we came off the roadshow, we got back from Denver, we got back not to San Diego, but we went to San Francisco. Morgan Stanley was the lead underwriter. We went to their offices in San Francisco. And there's sort of a controlled release and, and you know, mid, mid-morning, about 10 in the morning, the first trade. And so we're watching, you know, the company priced at 21. The first trade was, I think, 35 or 40. We closed the first day at 67. And then you... Ah, uh, the good old days. Yeah, the good old days. And so, uh, but, you know, pretty, pretty heady, pretty heady and an incredible experience. That's, a, that's an amazing experience. And to have taken a company public really at the, the height of the dot-com era must have been very exciting. So you talked a little bit about these balance issues. So managing companies, you have to provide some financial discipline. But you also, because you're in a technology company, you don't want to be stifling innovation. You don't want to be getting in the way. How do you, how do you manage that, especially as the CFO, where you're the one that has to be in there imposing some financial discipline on the company? Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a tricky balance and I think you know, to me the trick is to add structure and process without becoming burdensome or becoming the enemy. You know, it's, it, I worked for one company and you know, people can be wary of the CFO. That's the bad dog and you know, stay away from the CFO or he's in a bad mood today or whatever. You know, you don't want to be known as, you know, quote unquote the Department of Revenue Prevention, right? So, but on but on the other hand, you know, you have different roles to perform and you know you are a fiduciary and you're viewed differently by different folks you know the board is looking to you to be the gatekeeper 
The founders, they operate on vision. And by the way, you need that. And vision is, you know, what really drives and, and, and that, that, that entrepreneurial spirit. You, you know, as I said, the employees want to either stay out of your way or stay in your good graces. So you've got to blend all this and you've got to collaborate. But um, at the end of the day, you know, you do have responsibilities and, you know, you really have to be balanced about picking your battles and, and knowing which systems, tools, processes, people you need, what you need in place to, you know, really be doing, you know, to be fulfilling your role, you know, as a fiduciary against all those constituents and, and, and your investors who tend to be your board. So I think, you know, my, that's that's sort of my counsel. And I think, you know, you've got to you've got to blend in, you've got to collaborate, you've got to spend team, time with people and give and take so that folks really understand that you're part of the team. You're not the enemy, um, but that you do have a job and, and you've got, you know, performance objectives that look a little bit different. Than, than the rest of the organization. John, as, as we wrap up, I'd like to ask you, with all the experience you've had, looking back over your career, if you could go back and talk to young John Creelman when you were starting out, what, what would you tell yourself? Boy. <laughs> well, I started, I started to be glib and say, you know, d- don't go work in startups. But no, it's, if, you, if, you, if you get the bug and you enjoy that and you enjoy working in, in these, these kinds of companies and fast-paced environments and, and, and so forth, I, there are a couple of things that jump out to me. First, you know, it sounds very cliche, but it's all about the people and the fit. The best experiences that I've had basically are cases where the integrity of the board and the management team have been very, very high. I mean, you're going to go through a lot of stresses and strains. You're going to go through th- things that test people's um, metal, their integrity. And so, you know, people matter. Make, make sure you know kind of who you're, who you're really um, getting into bed with, if you will. And, you know, that first experience I alluded to, um, we had one contentious investor. The other two investors who were on the board, I won't mention their names, but they were world, they, at the time they were serious VCs. And today they're world-class VCs, world-class VCs. If I name the companies they were affiliated with and they were the first VC and it's mind-blowing. So very collegial guys. So, but one bad apple in that case made it for a very difficult ride. So people matter. The second thing is focus. If, if you're going into a company and if all people talk about is this amazing technology and the tremendous you know, breadth of application rather than a specific product or an application, then to me, that's sort of a focus. Lack of focus, or perhaps worse, um, they, that, that may be indicative that they don't necessarily have the DNA to execute around a focus, you know? It's like that movie City Slickers. They, you know, they asked the old cowboy, Jack Palance, you know, what's the most important, what's the secret to life? And he said, you know, one thing, one thing. Do one thing really well. Know what that one thing is. So focus is the second item. And then, um, I think as a CFO, being the counselor, the third thing as a CFO, you know, you're the counselor, you're the consigliore, in particular the CEO. So I, I try to really understand if the management team and the CEO in particular that I'm going to go work with is what I call coachable. And that's not condescending. That's if, if, I, bring, if I bring things to their attention and you have to pick your battles and you have to be, uh, you know, prioritized, but, you know, is the management team, starting with the CEO, coachable? Because if you have experience and if you, um, if you really bring you know, a full toolkit to the table, 
um, you know, you don't want to you don't want to impose yourself everywhere. But in those in those areas that are important that relate back to, you know, fulfilling your role as a key fiduciary, um, it's really important that that you work with CEOs and management teams that are coachable or that are at least open to, you know, a good kind of a Socratic dialogue around, you know, opposing points of view and different ways of doing things and in balancing all that. So again, back to balance. We, we could probably do an entire podcast about you know, how management interacts and this, all, this whole concept of, you know, coachable you know, CEOs and, and members of management. Uh, it's a, a fascinating topic. Well, John, thank you so much for, for joining us. Really appreciate great insights. I am Jeremy Glazer of Vince Levin, and thank you for listening to this edition of From the Edge.